please turn with me to Ephesians 2, 11 to 16. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, to remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is God's word. In a couple of weeks, we're going to begin a new series through the book of Hebrews uh, that will take us through the winter and the spring. And we're looking forward to to starting that. This morning, uh, we're in Ephesians to consider an important and timely topic. What does the gospel have to say about racial reconciliation? And so keep your Bibles open, and let's pray and ask God to meet us during this time. Gracious Father, it is your voice that we long to hear and your voice that we need to hear this morning. So would your spirit be at work right now with your word open before us to open our eyes, to open our ears, to open our hearts to what you have to say, that we might be transformed more and more into the likeness of Christ, both personally and as a church community. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, tomorrow is the birthday of Martin Luther King, Jr., a uh, Baptist pastor and activist who led, was really the face of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, fighting against racial injustice and segregation, discrimination in America. And tomorrow is also the day that Americans have set aside for the last 30-plus years to honor his legacy, to remember uh, the work that he did uh, as a federal holiday. And this year, 2018, marks 50 years since Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4, 1968. He was murdered because the idea that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the idea that our Declaration of Independence applied equally to black men and women as it did to white, that idea was considered too radical, too threatening to society, by which was meant white society, the white status quo. So much that even the FBI wrote a letter to King in 1964 attempting to blackmail him into committing suicide. 
But King had a dream, right? His famous speech given on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, 1963. And he said that day, I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And King's dream was radical because it wasn't reality. It wasn't reality in that day. Even the speech, as he gave that speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. So Abraham Lincoln, who a hundred years earlier had signed the Emancipation Proclamation, ending slavery in this country. A hundred years earlier, a hundred years later, as King stood on the steps of that memorial, he declared, but 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still badly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And that was just over 50 years ago when he uttered those words. I mean, it wasn't that long ago. In 1963 in the South, it was illegal for a black man to have dinner at the same lunch counter as a white man. That was illegal. It was illegal for black men and women to sit in the whites-only section of the city bus or to drink from the same water fountain as a white person or to go to the same schools, even to attend the same churches. To put it into perspective, before 1967, some of the marriages in this church would have been illegal in certain states because you could not marry someone of a different race. That's not that long ago. And, and even as we stand 50 years later, after King's assassination, uh, despite whatever advances have been made, racism continues to cripple the lives of countless men and women in our country. The civil rights movement was effective in many ways in, in terms of abolishing legalized forms of racism. So we kind of had written it into laws. And we got rid of a lot of those legalized forms. But the indisputable fact is that not only have we seen a spike in racial tension in recent years, I mean, that's just turn on the news or open the paper. That's visible. Protests over police brutality against minorities or the white supremacist march in Charlotte last year, debates over the Confederate monuments, racist graffiti in our local high schools. 
Weston and other schools. So not only is there an indisputable spike in racial tension, but many of our institutions and systems continue to be structured in such a way as to prioritize or marginalize people relative to ethnic heritage. They're just It's woven into them. Documented disparities in education, economics, criminal justice, even medical treatment. And so the question that I want to ask this morning is this. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ have to say about that? We will often ask that kind of question with different social issues in our day. We've asked that question from this pulpit with regard to abortion. What does the gospel of Jesus have to say about abortion? We've asked it with regard to politics, to uh, Hollywood, to sexuality or social justice. But we need to ask that question about race as well. Because this is the world we live in. This is the world we live in. It is the world that we are sent into as messengers of the gospel. And this is what so many in this world continue to face. Friends and family, neighbors, brothers and sisters in Christ. And and while there's a temptation for a suburban majority white congregation like Westgate not to feel the urgency of this kind of question God's church should always be bothered by and burdened for injustice in whatever shape it takes. And right now, many of our brothers and sisters of color have long felt abandoned in this particular cause. We will show up to protest abortion. We will sign petitions about marriage and sexuality and religious liberty. But when it comes to racial injustice, there is too often a deafening silence. And that shouldn't be the case. That shouldn't be the case because the gospel does have something to say about this question, about the people it affects. That's not the message of the gospel. So racial reconciliation is not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is who God is and what he's done to deal with our sin, and establish his kingdom through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the power of the Spirit, that, a message that we receive by faith. So that's the message of the gospel. But there is an implication of that message. That good news has implications for how we view each other, and how we treat each other, and how we love each other, how we stand up for each other according to the value and dignity of all humanity made in God's image, but especially according to the unity that we have in Christ as members of one multi-ethnic, blood-bought family of God, whom he has reconciled to himself and to each other in one body through the cross. The gospel has implications for race and racial reconciliation. And so I want to consider those implications this morning um, in the book of Ephesians, mostly in chapter 2, but we'll spend a little time in chapter 4. Now, hopefully you've still got it open in front of you. Ephesians is one of the letters that Paul wrote from prison to the early churches in the first century. 
And in this letter, he provides a sweeping portrait of the sufficiency and the sovereignty of God and his great work of salvation in Christ. It is a beautiful portrait. A plan that God accomplishes for the, a plan that he had for the fullness of time, he tells us in chapter 1, verse 10, to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So, so the gospel, the fruit of the gospel from the very start of this book is a gospel that brings people together, that unites them in Christ. Reconciliation. And a plan that is accomplished not by what we do for God, but as he puts it in chapter 2, by grace through faith. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. God's great plan of salvation was by grace. And it wasn't just for his covenant people, Israel. It was a plan for all nations. Clear back from God's plan in creation to his promise to Abraham, this was a plan for all nations. And that's something that Paul goes to great lengths to emphasize in this particular letter. Because what we don't often realize is that as the gospel of Jesus broke into lives, in the lives of both Jews and non-Jews, what we often call Gentiles, uh, as the gospel broke into the lives of Jews and non-Jews in the first century, it revealed a lot of historical and ethnic hostility among the people of God. We, we kind of sometimes have this fairy tale vision of the early church. So we all just got along and we're sharing everything. The reason we have the letters in the New Testament is because the church was struggling with lots of things. And one of those things was this kind of hostility that was revealed. And, and some of that was simply out of confusion. For centuries, Israel had been the covenant people of God. They were the ones who had been rescued from Egypt and set apart as, as God's people. And, and they, they were set apart as holy. They lived differently from the nations around them. They ate differently. They dressed differently because they were a different people, a set-apart people. And so now that God's promise of salvation was going beyond his covenant people Israel and inviting all nations in, that was a hard thing to adjust to. Uh, it took them a while to take that on board. You think of the, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. It was all about, what do we do? This isn't just an Israel thing anymore. How do we work through this? And so some of that hostility or, or tension was simply out of confusion. But it wasn't always covenantal or historical confusion. Because Israel's covenant status was so closely tied to their ethnic identity, they were a covenant people, but they were a Jewish people. A lot of ethnic and cultural distinctions, even racial distinctions, also got in the way. As Paul notes in Ephesians 2.11, the Gentiles were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. And so Jews whose identity was marked by the right of circumcision 
had, had used that label uncircumcision as a kind of derogatory term to refer to non-Jews. So, so right there you see some of that tension. But Paul tells a, a similar story in the letter to Galatian, uh, to the churches in Galatia. How at one point he had to rebuke Peter to his face. Peter the apostle who was super close with Jesus. That Peter. Paul had to rebuke him to his face because his conduct was, quote, out of step with the truth of the gospel. Well, what was so bad that Peter did that Paul rebuked him publicly on it? Galatians 2.12, For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Think about what Peter did in that moment. He separated himself from brothers and sisters in Christ because of their ethnicity and because he was more afraid of what the people in power would say than what effect his actions would have on those who were already being marginalized in the church. It was a bad move. And Paul calls it what it is. It is out of step with the truth of the gospel. The gospel has something to say about the way we interact among racial distinctions. And so how does it address hostility and racism? Paul walks us through the reconciling power of the gospel in Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. And he begins by recognizing our need for the gospel, which is true for everyone, all of us, uh, true for Israel and, and, uh, and the Gentiles, but which the Gentiles felt in a particularly strong way as those who had up to this point been outside the covenant people. So again, chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, yes, Paul's frustrated by the hostility that he sees between Jew and Gentile, the circumcision and uncircumcision, but that doesn't mean that the Gentiles didn't have a real problem. Apart from Christ, they were cut off. They were trapped in a world of idolatry and alienation. And unlike Israel, which did have the privilege of being God's covenant people and receiving those promises and so on, they were far off from that. But the reason Paul points this out is not to kind of create some sort of insecurity. Rather, the reason he points out how far away they were is to emphasize how big God's grace is in bringing them near. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The gospel is for all peoples, all nations, all ethnicities, And in being reconciled to Christ, we are at the very same time reconciled to one another. 
across covenantal and racial lines. And the power for that reconciliation, again, it doesn't lie in what we do. It lies ultimately in what Christ has already done. That's where it lies. So look at verse 14. For Christ himself is our peace. Where do we find peace amid this? Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, the the covenantal stipulations that for so long marked the difference between Jews and Gentiles. He abolished those that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Jesus is our peace. He's the one who reconciles us to God and to one another at the same time through the cross. It's, it's incredible. God in his divine wisdom, his plan was not merely to redeem individuals to God or even peoples to God, but his plan was to take those individuals and those peoples men and women from every tribe and language and nation, and bring them into one body, one family, and reconcile them together to himself as one new humanity in Christ. It's a corporate deal. It's a corporate deal. And in doing so, the hostility that once separated Jew and Gentile the hostility that the early church was experiencing, the hostility among people who are not like each other that continues to plague human history right up to today, that hostility has been killed through the cross. That's what Jesus does. Reconciles us to God and to one another at the same time, killing the hostility. It is dead for the Christian Jesus took all of the sin and racism and wickedness of all kinds, everything that separates us from God and from one another, and he dealt decisively with it in a way that no one else could. Not by pretending that it really isn't that bad. You know, you're just exaggerating. Uh, Not by explaining it away or sweeping it under the rug of revisionist history. He did it by taking all of it, all of our sin, including every prejudiced opinion, every racial slur either given or received, every injustice, every discrimination, every whipping, every lynching, every murder, Christ took all of it in his body on the cross that he might deal decisively with that sin, bearing God's holy anger against all of it in our place so that God could deal justly with sin and mercifully with sinners. That's what Christ has done. Christ is our peace who reconciles us to God and to one another at the same time through the cross. 
And if that's true, then not only does the gospel call us to care about racial reconciliation, like this should bother us, it also provides the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution. If this is true, then we actually have hope for reconciliation in a world of racial hostility. There's hope for forgiveness and freedom to forgive. And nothing else can provide that in such a sweeping and eternal and ultimate way as the cross. The sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. That's what the cross can do. There are a lot of weapons for fighting racism, um, and that's great. And there are a lot of important advocates and activists working tirelessly for this important cause. But the ultimate weapon we've been given, the one that actually has the power to bring true and eternal change, is the gospel. You care about racial reconciliation, care about the gospel. Every other strategy in dealing with racism in some way will either leave sin unpunished or reconciliation incomplete. Only the gospel has the power to deal with both of those. Only Jesus has the power to bring eternal healing and wholeness to one of the greatest wounds in our national story, in our present society, even in the experience that many of us have lived. He has killed the hostility through the cross. And so what do we do with that as a church? I'll be honest with you, I'm not 100% sure. I will do that sometimes. I will raise an issue, not because I figured the issue out, but because it's important and I want to start the conversation among us. I want, us, I want to put this issue on the radar for Westgate. Because it's important because it is an implication of the gospel, because it's the world we live in, and because our brothers and sisters of color should not have to stand alone in this fight. And because even though we have historically, traditionally been a a majority white congregation, that's changing. We're excited about that, the beauty of that. And so... I want to put this on the radar for us. But I do want to be a little specific, at least, uh, and share two applications as starting points uh, based on Paul's own applications of the gospel in chapter 4. So if your Bible's still open, turn there, chapter 4. The first application is repentance and revitalization. Chapter 4, verse 17. Now I say this and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. 
assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God wants us to live in accordance with who we truly are as a new humanity in Christ. And that means turning away from old mindsets, old passions and old patterns that are out of sync with the gospel, that are darkened by sin, darkened understanding, ignorance, hardness of heart. And instead, we need to be thinking and living in step with the gospel according to our new identity, which is created, as Paul says, after the likeness of God, the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. And so, with respect to the specific subject, Paul applies this broadly to the church in Ephesians 4 to any sort of disunity that the church might find itself facing. But with respect to the specific topic of racial reconciliation, some of the questions that we need to be willing to ask ourselves, what darkened understandings of race and ethnicity am I holding on to? We need to be willing to ask ourselves that question. What stereotypes have I embraced even unwittingly? What myths have I bought into about the scope of the problem or the history of our nation, about the complicity of our ancestors, or even the compromise of some of our theological heroes? Some of these Puritans we love to to quote, they didn't have a good track record on the issue of race and slavery. We need to own that and not pretend it's otherwise. What myths have we bought into? And and so we need to ask God to expose any darkened thoughts that we have and root them out of our hearts and minds. Ask God to search our hearts. That's that's the first one. Uh, The second question, what is the condition of my heart toward those who experience discrimination? What's the condition of my heart toward those who are experiencing discrimination? Discrimination. Is my heart heart? Is my heart hardened to their plight? Is my heart hardened? Am I tempted to lay blame at the feet of the victims? They must have done something to deserve this. Am I comfortable carrying on with life as normal as though this isn't my problem? Maybe that's kind of where some of us are at. That I, we're against racism. We just don't think of this as being our problem. Ask God to soften your heart. Ask God to soften your heart. Third question. Am I guilty of racism? Am I guilty of racism? Have I said or done or thought things that slander the dignity and humanity of others made in God's image because of racial differences? And that's a hard question to ask. One, it's uncomfortable. Nobody wants to be guilty of that. Um, it's okay if the pastor asks, am I guilty of greed? Am I guilty of, you know, am I guilty of racism? That's a hard question to ask. 
And, and one of the difficulties in asking it is that it's often not the kind of question you can answer yourself. Most, nobody will stand there and say, yes, of course, I, I have been guilty of that. Usually, we just can't see it. And so the only way we can answer that question is by being in community with others who can help us see it. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But as God convicts us of these things, repentance then means confessing and repudiating our sin, turning away from it, seeking forgiveness from those we've sinned against, and asking, how can we repair the harm? That's what repentance looks like. And so so we must repent. We need to put off the old self and be renewed. But then there's also revitalization, walking according to the new life that is in us through Christ. So putting on that new self that's created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So saying no to the old and embracing and living out the new, that new identity that we have, loving one another as a family in Christ, emphasizing our unity in Christ, and celebrating the diversity we have as a church, and cultivating that diversity in our relationships, in our leadership, in our ministries, not viewing differences as a threat, but rather as a gift. One of the most powerful statements that a church can make against racism is simply by loving one another as a genuinely multi-ethnic family of God. Being different. That is a powerful statement. And so repentance and revitalization, that's the first application. The second application comes from chapter 4, verse 25. And that is to speak the truth and listen to those who are speaking the truth to us. Speak the truth and listen to those who are trying to speak the truth to us. Verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbors, for we are members one of another. Reconciliation requires truth. It requires truth if it's going to be real. And that's true in our personal relationships. When, when we have friendships or marriages that break down, to be reconciled, we must seek truth. It, it's not going to work. But it's also true with regard to race. Reconciliation requires truth. Truth about our history. Truth about our situation. Truth about sin and injustice. Truth about grace and mercy. And if we're not willing to seek truth about racism in our society, we have no hope of actually seeing the reconciling power of the cross change anything. We must seek the truth. And and seeking the truth begins by speaking the truth. Being willing to call sin what it is, giving voice to the marginalized, validating their experience, calling out, calling for justice on their behalf. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9, puts it like this. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth 
judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. There have always been in this fallen world those whose voices are silenced or marginalized or pushed to the edge. And God causes people not to ignore that, but to speak truth on their behalf. And, and that, that sounds like an uncomfortable thing. That sounds like, I don't know, but this is what he's calling us to. We need to speak the truth with our neighbor in the face of injustice. Even if it's unpopular, uncomfortable, even if it goes against people that we otherwise might appreciate. We need to be willing to call it out and be called out for it. We need to be willing to say things like, just as one example, what the president said last Thursday about Haitians and Salvadorans and Africans was vulgar and racist. We need to be able to say that out loud, regardless of what you think about politics. That's not a political issue. That's about the dignity of people made in God's image, people like my brother-in-law who came from El Salvador, people like the people of Haiti whom I'm going to spend next week with in Port-au-Prince. We need to be willing to speak truth on these kinds of issues. Because what happens if we don't? What happens if you don't? What message do we communicate then? What message do those who slander or exploit others hear? And what message do their victims hear? Because we're always communicating a message, even if our mouths never open. If we don't say, this is wrong, this is evil, this is not the way it's supposed to be, and we need to call for something better, we must speak truth. But in order to do that well, especially with this issue, and especially for those of us who are part of a majority culture here in America, it's just as important, if not more important, that we first listen to those who are trying to speak truth to us. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, in which Martin Luther King wrote in response to a public statement of concern that was published about his methods of nonviolent demonstration by eight white religious leaders in the South. King wrote in response. It's a long letter, and you should read it. He wrote, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who's more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with the methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. I've heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers say, Follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. 
in the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I've watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities in the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard so many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has nothing to do. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, sacred and the secular. We need to listen to what our our brothers and sisters of color are trying to say. And what King was saying in this letter is a message I hear often from pastors and churches of color today. Evangelical churches, we are agreed in statement of faith, and yet we feel miles apart on this issue. Pleading with majority white churches and institutions to wake up to the crisis to listen to the plight of our brothers and sisters of color without presuming that we already get it or that we can relate, to encourage and empower them for leadership in churches and institutions, and not to wait for minorities in the congregation to raise this issue, but rather to commit ourselves to this implication of the gospel that Jesus Christ is our peace And he has reconciled us to God and to one another at the same time through the cross. Paul writes in Colossians, here, in the church, among the people of God, here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That's the reconciling power of the gospel. And our world, our neighborhoods, our communities, and our church need that reconciling power to be brought to bear. Jesus calls us to care and provides the solution for caring. And so may that gospel bear increasing fruit among us and through us for the good of our souls, for the good of our neighbors, and ultimately for the glory of God, who in that final day will be surrounded with men and women from every tribe, language, people, and nation, worshiping him together as one family forever. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we confess that for many of us, this is a a new and uncomfortable topic. We just don't talk about it. And Lord, we pray that we would change. We pray that we would truly bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters. Especially the burdens of our brothers and sisters in Christ, but also brothers and sisters in humanity, Lord all made in your image, all worthy of dignity and honor as your image bearers. Lord, would you convict us of sin? Would you convict us of complacency? Would you convict us of whatever way we fall short in loving our neighbor as ourselves? And would you fuel us with a passion that comes from Christ 
to lay our lives down in love, to open our mouths for those who can't speak, to stand with our brothers and sisters of color, to see a new day in which your gospel is showing its glory and beauty, not merely in saving our souls from hell, but in reuniting a broken humanity in Christ. Lord, would you do it? Only you can do it. And so we ask it in your name. Amen.